Our scripture reading is from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. This is found on page 787 in the Pew Bible. This is a prayer of Habakkuk, which was historically recited or even sung with stringed instruments in choir. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk rejoices in the Lord. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stars, stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength and he makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we look at this passage this morning, um, and I was meditating and pondering on this week, I, I was reminded of a video I had seen uh, from author and researcher Brené Brown. And uh, Brené has done extensive thinking in the areas of shame and vulnerability and grief. And two of her TED Talks uh, have become some of the most watched talks on the TED site. And during a difficult season in Brené's life, she decided to go back to the local church. I wanted to start our time this morning by listening to her talk about that decision to go back to church. It's a powerful metaphor, isn't it? That question that she raises, are, are we coming to church looking for an epidural or for a midwife? I've been thinking a lot about that question this week. What, what do I come to church looking for when I come uh, each Sunday? What, what do I come to faith looking for? And as we spend these, as we've spent these weeks in Habakkuk together, feeling lament and questions with us. If you've been here the, the past couple of weeks, you know that Habakkuk is a, a book full of lament. It's full of questions. And as we've walked with Habakkuk, we've felt our own lament and our own questioning. And I doubt that in these weeks you felt like church has been easy. Habakkuk is a heavy book. It starts with the agonized cry of a prophet who says to God, why aren't you doing anything about the suffering, the injustice? I, I see it all around me. And, and only to have God respond to him saying, oh, Habakkuk, I am doing something, but something you won't hardly believe and something you won't like. I'm actually going to use a people who are even worse than your own people to judge you but don't worry, eventually I'm going to punish them also. That's where we ended last week. And, and we're about to celebrate Thanksgiving and Christmas, the season of joy. But this isn't exactly a, a cheery book. In the light of everything we've heard in Habakkuk these past couple of weeks, you, you may be wondering, I've wondered this week, in a world full of so much suffering and justice, is it even possible is it even right to experience joy in this world? Is joy a, a proper thing to have in this world? And, and you see the surprising answer that comes at the end of the book of Habakkuk. You have to get all the way to the very end. But the surprising answer is yes. 
And this is what's amazing about this little prophetic book tucked away in the Old Testament right toward the end. It starts with Habakkuk's complaint, but look where we are now. Where the scripture reading finished this morning, what Mickey read for us. Notice the the radical shift that that takes place between chapter 1, verse 2, and chapter 3, verse 18. Let me just remind us of chapter 1, verse 2. This is how the book started. These are the words of Habakkuk. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. That's where the book begins. But then look at where it ends here in chapter 3, verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. And so the question for us is what has changed to bring this shift about? I mean, how does Habakkuk move from lament, from crying out, God, why aren't you listening to me? Why aren't you doing anything? To an affirmation of, I'm going to rejoice in you, the God of my salvation. And the answer rests in the subtle but vital distinction between joy and happiness. You see, happiness is rooted in our circumstances, but joy is rooted in a person, in God himself. We can't miss that, otherwise we're not going to understand what Habakkuk is saying. That happiness is rooted in our circumstances, but joy is rooted in a person. You see, Habakkuk's circumstances haven't changed at all in the book. In fact, if anything, he's only gained greater clarity as the book has gone along about how bad his circumstances are and actually how much worse they're going to get before they get better. So it's not his circumstances that have changed to bring it about. So what has changed? What's changed is his perspective on who God is and what he will do. You see, our world is a mess. It's an absolute mess. In our individual and collective circumstances, they fluctuate wildly. I mean, the markets go up and down. We experience great gain as well as great loss. And yet, joy is possible. And yet, joy is possible. Imagine any difficult, even crushing circumstance in your life. For some of you, you don't have to imagine. Actually, you're you're there this morning. You are in the midst of it. You are feeling that crushing circumstance. Whatever it is that you thought of, whatever it is that you're experiencing, whatever it is, fill in the blank there, and yet joy is possible. What we're going to see this morning is that for Christians, lament and joy are actually not opposites. Lament and joy are not opposites. In fact, joy is deepened in lament. So how is joy possible even in the darkest moments of life? even in moments of deep sadness and lament. And we're going to see three things this morning that that make joy possible. Joy is possible first when we face the brutal facts about reality. You have to have all these. So it's possible when we face the brutal facts about reality. It's possible when we retell the story with expectation. 
And it's possible when we choose the Savior who fights for us. So that's going to be our, our, our map for this morning. We're going to look at, at facing the brutal facts about reality, retelling the story with expectation, and choosing the Savior who fights for us. And this is the first thing that we learn in Habakkuk chapter 3, is that joy is possible even in lament through what is somewhat counterintuitive, even paradoxical, and that is that we have to face the brutal facts about reality. In, in order to experience joy, we have to press in to the most brutal facts about where we are at. Notice verses 16 and 17 in chapter 3. This is where Habakkuk begins. He says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, the fruit tree, the vines, the olives, the fields, none of this is going to take root. It's all going to fail. There's going to be no food. The flock will be cut off, and there will be no herds in the stall. Trembling, rottenness entering his bones. This is where Habakkuk is as he contemplates what's coming, what God has told him is coming on his nation. He's waiting for the day of trouble to come. There are no rose-covered glasses here for Habakkuk. He is not deceived about what is coming. He knows what this means for his people. It means no more food. It means no money. It means no economic security. They talk about the empty stalls, the flocks. I mean, back in this time, your money was your animals. So this is no, no money, no security. It meant famine and destruction. I mean, think of what those in the Middle East, in Iraq and Syria, are, are experiencing at the hands of ISIS. This and worse is what Habakkuk and his people are going to face. And he's honest about it. He's absolutely honest about it. He doesn't, doesn't paint a picture. He doesn't deny that this is going to happen. Habakkuk knows how bad it's going to be. He's under no delusions that everything is okay. And this is why the and yet is so vital to our big idea. It's not just joy is possible. No, it's and yet joy is possible. You see, that little, those two little words, and yet, are indispensable to Christian joy. The and yet looks at life and honestly acknowledges the profound evil and injustice and suffering in our world and in our lives and our, even in our own hearts. So it's not just joy is possible, it's and yet, in light of all that's wrong, joy is possible. You see, the, the first step to experiencing joy in the midst of suffering and brokenness is to be honest with suffering. Rejoicing in the Lord, rejoicing in Yahweh, the one true God, does not mean pretending that everything is okay when it isn't. It's not about putting on a happy face when inside you're falling apart. We will not find joy unless we are honest with the brutal facts. Leadership expert Jim Collins gives a, a great example of this in his classic book, Good to Great. And he calls it the Stockdale Paradox. As Jim was researching um, 
uh, companies and on the, for this book, Good to Great, he interviewed Admiral Stockdale. Stockdale was the highest-ranking U.S. officer held captive in the Hanoi Hilton during the Vietnam War. And Collins asked Stockdale how he endured years of unspeakable torture with no prospect of rescue. And this is what Stockdale said. He said, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life. Collins was pondering Stockdale's response for several minutes, and then he asked a follow-up question. He said, well, well, who didn't make it out? I mean, who didn't survive the prison? And Stockdale shot back without even pausing to think, oh, that's easy. The optimists. The ones who said, oh, we'll be out by Christmas, and, and then, oh, we'll be out by Easter, or by next Thanksgiving. He said those days would come and pass, and we wouldn't be rescued And Stockdale said, the optimists died of a broken heart. And and Collins is standing there a bit puzzled because he said, you just kind of told me that you had this unshakable faith in the end. Isn't isn't that optimism? But you said the optimism, the optimists, those are the ones who didn't make it. And then this is what Collins says, and we we can't miss this. He said to, to Collins, this is a very important lesson He says, you must never confuse the faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. You must never confuse the faith that you will prevail in the end, which you cannot afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. And this is the paradox of finding joy in lament. We, we can't ignore the pain in order to escape it. Uh, this is something actually that, that Brené Brown points out in her TED Talk on vulnerability. She makes the simple but profound observation that we cannot selectively numb emotions. When we numb the painful emotions, we also numb the positive emotions. We can't selectively numb emotions. We, we, we numb them all when we do both the painful and the positive. Which, which brings us to a key question this morning. Are, are we looking for an epidural or a midwife? Now, now let me just say here, that that's a, this is a metaphor. Um, when it comes to actual childbirth, I believe epidurals are a wonderful gift of modern medicine. Um, <laughs> but when it comes to the local church, what we find is not a community that numbs our pain and suffering or just tells us to think positive thoughts. The local church, the Christian faith community, is much more like a midwife who says, keep pushing. The church, Jesus doesn't say, I will take the pain and discomfort away. Rather, they say, I will sit with you in it. I will be near to you. You see, those who find joy and lament, those who endure, those who last, they tell the truth about the reality of suffering in the world. They don't deny, they don't distract, they don't detach from it. They name it and they bring it to God and lament. This is what Habakkuk has been doing for the first two chapters of the book. He's been brutally honest with God. 
And he and even continues that in chapter 3. And yet joy is possible. It's in the bulk of chapter 3, really verses 1 through 15, that we find the second key element that makes joy possible. Joy is possible when we retell the story with expectation. And that's what Habakkuk is doing in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 3. We didn't have those verses read, but, but notice how the chapter begins. If you have your Bible open, just look back there to verses 1 and 2. It says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to the Shiganoth. So this is a prayer. And he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and of your work. O Lord, do I fear So he's saying, I've heard the report. I've heard what you've done in the past, Lord. And then he says this, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. You see, Habakkuk received the Lord's response. Chapter 2 ended with, with the earth keeping silence before him. That was the call. So Habakkuk has kept silence before him, and now he prays. And his prayer is not a question or a complaint anymore, but a plea In the verses that follow, Habakkuk retells the story of God's great saving work in the past. He has heard the report of what God has done in Israel's history. But but notice, he doesn't just take a trip down memory lane. This isn't a moment of nostalgia for, for what it was like back then when God was at work. No, it's a plea that God do it again. This becomes really clear in in Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of verse 2. This is how he he puts this. He says, God, I've heard what our ancestors say about you, and I'm stopped in my tracks, down on my knees. Do among us what you did among them. Work among us as you worked among them. Habakkuk is retelling the story with expectation. And this is the key to the possibility of joy, even in the midst of suffering. He knows the story. He knows how God has acted in the past to save his people. And there are a number of key elements in in Israel's history that Habakkuk alludes to in verses 3 3 through 15, if you read through them. But much of the imagery, almost all of it, points back to the paradigmatic saving event in Israel's history. The Exodus event. When God brought his people who were enslaved in Egypt out, where he, he rescued them, he sent the plagues, he brought them out, he brought them across the Red Sea, he saved them from the pursuing Egyptian armies. Habakkuk knows the story, but, but he doesn't stop there. He retells the story and he does it with expectation. He says, do it again. God, work among us as you worked among them back then. Rescue us like you rescued them. He knows the story. He recounts the story. And he pleads for God to do a new work now. So the question for us here is, whose story are you telling? Which story do we find ourselves in? What story is shaping your expectations and your hopes? You see, the Bible, the the Christian faith, is is more than simply a set of propositions or truth claims that we sort of memorize and file away in our 
mental databases. Now, now to be clear, it also isn't less than that. But these propositions, these truths about who God is, what he has done, what he's doing, what he will do, they're embodied in the grand narrative, the greatest story ever told, ever told. History really does matter to Christianity. It's not just a bunch of legends or myths. It's a story of God encountering his people, revealing himself, rescuing them. So whose story are you telling? Because every one of us is telling a story. I mean, whether we, we realize it or not about, about the world and how it came to be and, and who, who we are in the, in the midst of it. And that story might be that, that matter has just sort of eternally existed. And then over time and with chance and the right events that humanity and earth as we know it ended up and that there is no God or sin or rescue. That, that story known as naturalism is, is one of the dominant stories in our culture today. Which story are we telling? As human beings, we have always been attracted to stories. And, and now even the, the best neuroscience research is actually confirming that our brains are, are hardwired. Our mental um, physicality is, is hardwired for story. A, a recent article in the Harvard Business Review titled, Your Brain Loves a Good Story, drawing on this new neuroscience research, concluded this way. The author was applying this to business work, and he said, when you want to motivate, persuade, or be remembered, start with a story of human struggle and eventual triumph. It will capture people's hearts by attracting their brains. Our brains, even our physicality, are wired for a good story. Habakkuk knew the story, and he retold it, and he drew strength from it. So where have you seen God at work in your life in the past? Maybe this Thanksgiving, you, you take a moment and you just recount some of those moments. Where, where have I seen God at work in the past? Give thanks to him for those. Retell those moments. Maybe even start keeping a, a journal or a diary, a file on your computer of those moments where you've seen God provide, where you've seen him rescue but here's the thing. Some of you are here this morning and, and you're in a place of saying, Bill, I just, I don't feel like I've seen God work in my life. At least I don't, I don't remember it. I think we all can have those moments occasionally. And in those moments, remember that you are a part of the people God has been working to save for thousands of years. That this great story that Habakkuk recounts is also your story. And also, it's interesting to note at the very end of chapter 3, it says to the choir master with stringed instruments. Uh, Mickey mentioned that this was a song that was sung. This chapter was a song that God's people sang, reminding one another of the hope that they have in the God who has acted to save and will act to save again. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we sing every Sunday when we gather when we sing the songs and hymns uh, that, that, that John and the team lead us in, these are ways of retelling one another with great expectation the story of God's saving work. The story we tell shapes everything about our lives, including how we see 
all of the world, including suffering. I love how C.S. Lewis puts this in his little essay called his Theology Poetry. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. The story is the lens which we see everything else through, even suffering. And yet joy is possible. Whose story are you telling? Are you telling it with expectation? So so joy is possible when when we face the brutal facts about reality. When we retell the story with expectation And finally, we see that joy is possible when we choose the Savior who fights for us. You see, every one of us here this morning is trusting something or someone to rescue us, to save us. Maybe we're trusting ourselves. In Habakkuk 1, chapter chapter 1, verse 11, we learn that the Babylonians trusted their own might to rescue them. It says their might was their God. At the end of the chapter 2, which Tom preached on last week, we, we saw that, that they also, another thing that they trusted were in idols. And, and we too, we struggle with placing our faith and our trust in, in idols, money and sex and power and influence and all these kinds of things. But what Habakkuk is so clear about in chapter 2 is that those idols are powerless. They can do nothing Idols will always lead you to despair. You see, joy is only possible when we choose the Savior who can and will fight for us. Look at chapter 3, verse 13. Habakkuk says, You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. God has promised that he will fight for, not against his people. God is going to judge. Habakkuk has made that very clear. God has made that abundantly clear to Habakkuk. But at the end of the day, the final word is not God fighting against us, but fighting for us. God is the one who goes out to battle on behalf of his people to rescue them, to save them. This is what happened in the Exodus story that Habakkuk alluded to in the previous verses. God's people were slaves. They were helpless. They never lifted a finger to fight against Egypt. They, they couldn't. They were too weak. Instead, God fought for them. He sent the plagues. He took them across the Red Sea. He rescued them from the Egyptian army. Joy is possible because we have a God who has promised to fight for us, not against us. Some of you this morning have experienced incredible pain at the hands of other people. You've been wronged. You suffer because of what others have done to you. God will fight for you. Satan and his forces, sin and the chaos that is wrought, they have all wreaked havoc and unspeakable pain in every one of our lives. And yet joy is possible because we have a God who has promised that he will triumph over those things. 
Your God is going to fight for you. He has fought for you. And and this is why Habakkuk can say in verses 17 through 19 that though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the the fields yield no food, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. You see, Habakkuk's joy is not based on his circumstances. His circumstances are getting way worse. His joy is based on his trust in God. He says, God, even though you take away everything from me, even though there's nothing left, no money, no food, I still have joy in you. Okay, so so how is that possible then that, that he's experiencing lament? He's in one verse, he's saying everything's being taken away. And in the very next verse, and yet I'm rejoicing in you. It's possibly because joy isn't an all or nothing proposition. We can't miss this. Joy isn't an all or nothing proposition. Theologian Miroslav Wolf makes a vital observation about joy. He says, to complete the sketch of joy, I need to add, for the most part, we don't experience joy as an all or nothing affair. It is neither a matter of having perfect joy or no joy at all. Nor does a matter of joy either overriding all emotions or being entirely absent. Let me say that again. It's, it's neither a matter of having joy perfectly or no joy at all. Nor does a matter of joy either overriding all emotions or of it being entirely absent. And this is what he says. Whether joy is intense or gentle, simple or complex, episodic or enduring, joy is mostly partial and overlaps with other emotions. Did you catch that? Joy is mostly partial and it overlaps with other emotions. Experiencing joy doesn't mean you don't also lament. Like we said at the beginning, lament often deepens joy. So joy and despair are incompatible. Joy and hopelessness are incompatible. But joy and grief joy and sadness, joy and lament. These aren't incompatible, and in fact, they frequently overlap. J.K. Rowling captures this beautifully in her Harry Potter books, and there's a moment where, where Harry, the hero of the story, looking into a special mirror, he sees his mom and dad looking back at him through the mirror. They had been murdered by the evil Lord Voldemort. Listen to how Rowling describes this scene. The potters smiled and waved at Harry as he stared hungrily back at them, his hands pressed against the glass as though we were hoping to fall right through and reach them. He had a powerful kind of ache inside of him, half joy, half terrible sadness. A powerful ache half joy, half terrible sadness. That's how joy works in the midst of a fallen world. 
That's how joy works in the midst of a fallen world. And yet joy is possible. It isn't all sadness. There is hope. We have a God who fights for us. So the question for us is, where are we finding our strength and joy? Are you finding your strength in, in, in your own might, in your own abilities? Or are you finding it in Yahweh's strength, in the one true God? It's one thing to ask that question, but, but how can I know, Bill? How can I know? Well, one way, there's lots of ways that you could potentially do diagnostics to try to understand where is my faith, where's my trust, where am I really finding joy? But, but one way is to ask, what is my worst nightmare? Or what is the thing that I'm most worried about? Because usually that points to the thing that, that we're trusting in. If it were to be taken away, be our worst nightmare. For me, I, I, Rachel knows this, one of my recurring nightmares, I probably have it about once a month, is that uh, I'm not prepared to preach a sermon. I find myself standing up here, I don't have my, my Bible, I don't have any notes, I haven't prepared. Um, the most recent time I had this, like, Tom was up here stalling for me, and I finally came, I was late, and then I showed up and I didn't have any notes. I mean, this is a regular <laughs> nightmare for me. But it's telling, right, isn't it? I probably put too much stock, too much hope in my own abilities, too much identity in my work. I often worry about money, probably put a little too much confidence in how much money is in the checking account. What are those things that, 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 that nightmare for you that you find yourself worrying about most often? Joy is found when we rejoice in the God of our salvation, not in our circumstances. When we rejoice in the blesser rather than in the blessings. And, and, and the blessings are great. God has given us incredible gifts. This Thanksgiving, thank him for those. But never confuse the blessings with the blesser. Because the ultimate gift that God gives is himself. He fights for us. He's the God of our salvation who goes out not against us, but goes out for us to rescue and save us. Life is a mess, and yet joy is possible. Fight for it. Ask God to help you trust in him rather than in your circumstances. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. And yet, because Christ has died, and yet because Christ has risen, and yet because Christ will come again, I rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Joy comes from trusting the one who has shown us mercy on the cross, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Joy comes in knowing that we have a God who fights for us, even when it seems like everything is against us and falling apart. In those moments in my own life where I feel that so heavily, 
I find myself returning to the third verse of the hymn, This is My Father's World. This is my Father's world, O ne'er let me forget, that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world, the battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. And in that moment, joy will no longer be mixed with sadness. Let's pray.